So today's scripture reading explains how it came to be that all the world will praise his great name. It's from Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. But when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, this is what it's like for the rest of us. I didn't there, but I can see it. Okay. So, um, we had a guest last week, Smita from IJN, talking about amazing work that she's doing in India. And that gave us a little bit of a break after Easter, but we had just celebrated Easter and we were at Gyro Park. For those of you who came to see the largest cross I've ever seen erected on that beach, even made the newspaper, pointlessly, apparently. We didn't know what to make of it. Our culture doesn't know what to make of it. So they talked about our cross to bear. Do you know that expression? Our cross to bear, it's a funny expression. It, it takes something as, as harsh as the Roman method of crucifixion, carrying your own device upon which you were killed, and it turns it into one of the inconveniences of life. <laughs> you know, we all have our crosses to bear. You know? well, unless you're being crucified, not really. <laughs> but in, in Victoria language, it was our cross to bear is beautiful weather in late winter still. Mm-hmm. So I guess it was, was it humor of some sort? Irony? Dismissal. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I don't know. It's funny because I, it was actually a very beautiful scene. Those were beautiful crosses and well made and with the fires burning in the dawn. Um, called forth maybe some more artistic meditation and the paper was able to handle it. That's okay. So we're back. We're in the post-Easter season, and this in the church calendar, look, you all have this calendar, and it's, it's welded onto your refrigerator. We've handed out hundreds of copies of it, and we're here now. We're, we're post-Easter, and we had communion last Sunday, and look, see that guitar, April 17th? That's um, next Sunday, and that's um, going to be Morgan asking for all of our artists and spoken word folks to prepare for the the inspired voices blurb that you all have and know about? Okay, we're going to keep reminding you. Because on the 20th of April, we're doing an open mic here, an art gallery showing in great festival. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. And then we head in towards uh, Ascension. The star above Mom on Mother's Day is the calendar season that celebrates the Ascension of Christ. And then we head to Pentecost. And that season is a hugely important, it's the last major season of the liturgical calendar, and it's all about the church, the spirit-filled church going out into the world. And so the series of messages we're going to talk about between now and Pentecost is really messages in the New Testament about how Christ and the Holy Spirit gathers together 
those who have witnessed the resurrection of Christ and sends them into the world to begin the world Christian movement of which we are still a part in this room tonight. So it's very exciting and it's a wonderful reminder of our foundations again as a missional community, as a community called to action in the world. One of the things recently, incidentally, I like messianic prophecy. I, I love to see prophecies in the Old Testament fulfilled in the New. But there are a few very interesting aspects to New Testament prophecy. And one of them is this. One of them is that from the book of Acts, which we're going to draw upon in, a, in the weeks ahead, that the early consciousness of the church was that this little rabble, this little sect of dissident Jews, with their belief in the resurrection of their Savior, was going to conquer Rome, was going to end up in Rome confronting the powers of the world. And the implication of the King of Kings is that our rejected one, the one who was crucified and thrown out, will yet be the king over the kings of the world. That whole attitude was believed in the church long before it even registered on the blips of history as anything other than a minor aberration of Judaism. Okay, So it's not the church 400 years later, once Christianity has become the legal religion of the Roman Empire. It's not rewriting its books to say, oh, we always knew we were going to be conquering Rome. No, it's while they were first moving out in faith into the world, and Christ said, go now into all the nations and make from among them followers of me. They believe that this will conquer the known ancient world. And it did. I find that exciting. The Great Commission, the passage we just read today, is one of the most well-known passages of, in Gospel of Matthew, Jesus launching his disciples now into the building of the church and the kingdom work in the world. And it's also one in which details here have not, I've never heard them properly paid attention to. So I'm going to pay attention to these. Tonight's a bit of a teachy one. So those of you who are like Bible nerds, you're going to get a couple of good little tidbits today. It's okay to be a Bible nerd. Bible nerds were actually cool and made nerdness cool. I mean nerdity. <coughs> Jesus commissions just a handful of people and look at the first sentence we get. He had sent women to tell them to go to Galilee and await a meeting with me. This is after he has been crucified and died. So they go and they wait for what? I don't know. The guy's dead. And we've heard something about women hallucinating or seeing ghosts or whatever, but we're going. And Jesus does, in fact, appear and meet them on a mountain in Galilee. He meets the twelve minus Judas, the eleven. And this is what it says. When they saw him, what's the first thing they did? They worshipped him. Meaning one of them had an acoustic guitar strapped on his back. <laughs> Probably a baby tailor. They started strumming some choruses. And they all sang worship songs, holding hands and swaying to and fro. <laughs> I don't know what this looks like, except that scenes in the Gospels are things like a woman at his feet crying and wiping his feet with her tears. It's much closer to the adoration of affection, where you hug and cry and squeeze and kiss 
and adore someone you love. And again, think of the emotional shock of the one who we saw die, or we knew died, we had abandoned him. The loss that they had been through, and now they're processing this fact that he can appear, or appears again. They don't know about the doctrine of the resurrection yet. They're experiencing this one who died, yet somehow in front of him, and tangibly enough that they could worship him and embrace him. And their next phrase is, but some doubted. And I love that. That jumped out at me as perfect, because it blends worship and doubt. Worship and doubt go hand in hand because everything I've ever experienced in church is a tendency to fake how much faith we have, especially on Sundays when we worship. That's when you put your doubts outside, leave it in the car, locked in with the dogs and the kids. Put on a necktie, act like a believer. Okay, enough of my childhood. <laughs> Could not claw through the glass. I want to worship. No, stay in the car. But it's hot. Have a cigarette. <laughs> it was my home. They worshipped and some doubted. Worship and doubt brought together. This is magnificent. Because the last thing you want is some sense that the apostles are paragons of faith so that we can never aspire to their holiness or the strength of their faith. They are seeing him there and they are in disbelief as would probably you and I be. Okay, so that's the state of affairs of this little ragtag group of disciples. And then he says to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Don't stop there. That's the Great Commission. It is given to people who worship and doubt. It's not given to scholars. It's not given to enthusiasts. It's given to a wounded, doubting, scared group of people. You don't see any courage in these people until later in the day of Pentecost. What is this blend of worship and doubt? What does that look like? Does that look like some were worshiping and then the rest of them were faking their worship. Were actually doubting inside. And the author knew that and wrote that down. Or is it that some worshipped, hugging Jesus, and others stood back, pulling on their chins? I'm not sure. So there was an obvious division in the ranks? How about, can't you worship and doubt at the same time? I think everybody does. I think everybody has some blend of Wondering whether this thing is even real or crazy. And don't you have moments? Don't you have moments? What if we're in the wrong religion? No, I don't have those anymore. I've got all religion is nonsense. So, ergo, mine too. Why do I believe? I found a Muslim here in town who's studying at UVic. He has a website. He's a neuroscientist doing his PhD. And on his website, his line is... Faith is not believing against the evidence. Faith is believing in the unseen. Faith isn't believing against evidence. Jesus is appearing and presenting evidence that death has been broken. 
Faith doesn't believe against the evidence and therefore is irrational. Faith believes that there's more than what meets the eye. There's more to the universe than, this, than what is seen. And believing that there's more is still very wide open. What is the unseen? What is that beyond? We don't know. And a lot of what we think and feel and imagine about the beyond or the other dimensions of existence are filled with doubt and wonder. A blend of wonder and doubt. Amazement and doubt. There's no indication here that their doubt is doubt in God. They were playing with atheism. They saw him rise from the grave and speak to them, and they began to doubt God. It doesn't say that at all. We've kind of figured that doubt is somehow something we negatively do toward God. We don't believe in him, usually the existence of God. No indication that's what's going on here. What they're doubting is this. That this is the same person who was horribly crucified just a few days ago and died and was buried. And we know he was buried for three days. So something ain't right here. Reasonable doubt, right? Either this is not the same Jesus that we knew who was alive because that one died. It's either that or he didn't die. He seemed to die. He didn't die with his lives. What they're doubting is what they have no sense of yet is this notion of resurrection. And there are many, many more meetings that Jesus will have with his disciples to indicate the physicality and the reality of his resurrection. But you've got to grant them the right to be, on the one hand, grabbing onto him the same way the women at the tomb did in worship and awe and wonder that the one we've lost is here. And at the same time, total confusion as to what is this? How can this be? The unbelievable nature of resurrection. I'm going to be drawing on two interesting theologians I'm studying for the next few weeks. Thomas J. Word and Robert Jensen. So a Lutheran and a Methodist. That means anything to any of you. Good Protestant stock. Word's entire obsession in doctrine is to understand and unpack what it means that God is love. And Jensen has written an introduction to theology that I'm going to recommend to you. And I'm going to bring that around and show it to you over the next few weeks. And I think everybody should read this. It's one of the simplest, most wonderful introductions to Christian faith and what it is we believe and why. Jensen said, what's happening here with the presentation of resurrected Jesus to his disciples, and then from there the testimony will begin to spread and he will appear to more, is a fulfillment of a prophecy given to Ezekiel, Old Testament, when Israel had been captured into Babylonian captivity, torn out of the land, the promises of God that they would inhabit the land forever, demolished, so that Israel now has an op- well, a crossroads that we either doubt that God keeps his promises or somehow we have to rethink what it meant that we would be in this promised land when we're taken out of it and put back into slavery. And so 
Ezekiel is given a vision where he sees a valley full of dry bones. It's chapter 37. You should read this. It's a very important prophecy. And the angel of the Lord is pointing to the bones and saying, I have one question. Can dry, dead bones like that ever live again? And Ezekiel says, I don't know. You know. And the Lord says to Ezekiel, prophesy over the bones. Tell them that sinew will form over you again, and flesh will form over the sinew, and skin will form over. And as he prophesies, this begins to happen to the bones. And then there is a valley finally full of dead but fleshed bodies. And he says, but there is no wind, no spirit in them. Then prophesy and call the wind to them. And Ezekiel calls the winds from the four corners of where the wind resides. And the wind of God fills the nostrils of the dead and they stand living again. And it says there's a valley full of living who were once dead. And the Lord says, this is Israel. Though Israel has died, though Israel seems dead, the last paragraph says, you will know when the dead rise from the graves, you will know that I am fulfilling my promise to Israel and through Israel to the world. It's repeated three times. When the dead arise from the grave, you will know I am fulfilling my promise. This resurrection appearance this evidence of the dead rising from the grave is the first great testimony that God has kept his promise to Israel and to the world. But as we're going to see, Messiah and what Messiah was supposed to be, this is a whole new way to think. And so, there they are, worshipping and doubting and wondering what this could mean. And then he piles a responsibility upon them. I am commissioning you with authority given to me. Now, all power in heaven and earth has been given to me, and I'm now going to commission you. If you look at how Jesus handled power, what Jesus did with earthly power, he eschewed any temptation to take hold of earthly power, the power to coerce, the power to force. He rejected this. Even when it was offered him by the devil in the temptation in the desert, he rejects earthly power as it is known by tyrants and those who use coercion to enforce or force. This is one of the big ironies, people. One of the big ironies in the New Testament is the meekness and the powerlessness with which Christ comes to the world to embody his message and to be his message and to say, my power is not the way this world does it. Not talked down by coercion, but washing your feet and serving you. And the greatest of you, the ones who would seek authority, shall be the meekest and the weakest and the lowliest among you. And serve one another. Are we to believe that now, after he's died and risen from the dead, all that's changed? And he's coming back and saying, now, I did the meat gig and you killed me. Now that I'm resurrected, I got the power. I got the authority. Now, I'm going to rule with will and with force, with coercion, the way earthly rulers. No, none of that. So we must not 
take some of the images given to us in the history of Christian art, which is the weirdest thing sometimes. Everything from alien two-year-old Jesus on the knee of Mary with the little golden plate behind his head to Jesus here suddenly having a scepter of wrath. There's nothing here like that. Because who is Jesus? God the Son. What is God the Son? God the Son is God in self-giving, gracious, redeeming, forgiving love. The Son of God is the manifestation of God's saving, redeeming nature. For him to say this is to say, it is the loving, forgiving, gracious, and merciful God who has the authority and the power in this universe. It is not the killers and the torturers. It is not those who amass power for their own ends. They will have no future in this universe. All authority and all power has been given to self-giving love, to grace, to mercy, to compassion, to gentleness and restoration and redemption. All these things have the final authority and the power in this universe that is coming. And it is in the name of self-giving love, as you just saw I gave my life for you, I now send you in the same spirit of love out into the world to make disciples. And then he says, go, make those disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Stop there. Church history nerds, listen up. For centuries, beginning in the late Roman Empire, well, let's say middle to late Roman Empire, the Christian church officially taught that Jesus just gave the baptismal formula here. One that is distinct from John the Baptist. That the formula for baptism is go and make disciples. And here's what you do. You baptize them in the Trinity. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so it was taught that Jesus taught Trinitarian baptism. And that's one way to read this. Now, we'll zoom ahead. A thousand years to Erasmus. Those of you who study humanist humanities, literature, you know Erasmus. Erasmus of Rotterdam. The guy who proved that if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. Right? <laughs> yeah. Erasmus produced one of the first critical Greek New Testaments in the Renaissance. And in his producing a usable edition of the Greek New Testament for scholars, for not, not just clergy, but any of these scholars at the time, he put the first little footnotes in there that scholars could read because he was assembling these scriptures from the various manuscripts. And he put a footnote in here. You're not going to hear this anywhere else. I learned it from a Mennonite seminary journal by a guy named Friesen who wrote this. The fact that we have his copy of the Greek New Testament and we have seen his footnote to Matthew 28. And here's what he said. He said, it is interesting that here Jesus says, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then when you look at the book of Acts, and you see every single baptism performed by the apostles and others in the book of Acts, not one of them is Trinitarian. Every single one of them is in the name of Jesus only. Now, that made Erasmus ask this question. Maybe Jesus wasn't giving a Trinitarian baptism formula, because no one did it. And if he wasn't using baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The whole point of this commission isn't how Catholics will baptize. 
then what is the point of the Great Commission? What's he saying? And this is where Emil Simon again unpack what Jesus would be saying. The other possibility is this. It isn't specifically that Jesus is saying you must baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, though. Absolutely nothing wrong with that, and that is church practice, even though it's not found, interestingly, in the New Testament. It isn't a baptism formula. It's an order of how you are to proceed in the world. Jesus gives this order. It is go. You've got to start right there. Go. Don't sit. Don't just pray that it happened. Get up. Go into the world and make disciples. So the order is make disciples, then baptize, then teach. And that's where the Mennonite Anabaptism looks at this and says, this is an anti-infant baptism position, that you must first make a disciple. And once a person has chosen to follow Jesus, then they are baptized. That's adult conversion. That's adult believer baptism. Go make disciples. When they have become disciples or accepted your testimony, then baptize and then teach them to obey. Oh, no, not like catechism, not doctrine, not Bible knowledge. No, teach them to obey what I have commanded. There's no New Testament yet. This is a community of people being launched into the world with a witness that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and therefore God has kept his promise to Ezekiel and to Israel. And that the kingdom of God is about conquering death and the world to come. It isn't going to be about earthly kingdoms. What they went to tell is that Christ had risen from the dead. It's much later on that the church, in dealing with heretics and dealing with other problems that are not even in the picture here, did things like set up two-year catechism classes, and after you've learned everything you need to learn about Jesus and their Christian religion, only then can you be baptized. This is no respond to this one thing. God was in Christ Jesus, reconciling the whole world to himself, because God is love. Do you know what the rest of the verse says in 1 John 4? God is love, and those who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. Do you believe that? God is much closer. Maybe we don't recognize it because we want a certain experience. You know, when, when I'm in God and God's in me, I expect there to be light, camera action, miracles, emotions. If you live in love, you are in God because God is love. And God is living in you and through you if you live in love. That's the lesson. God loved all of us, and has taken the steps necessary to bring us all home safely. That's the news. And if I say, what should I do? Now that you're sharing this testimony with me, what should I do? It is turn from your former way of life and be baptized. Then we have a lot we can talk about. Then we can teach. Then we can go back and re-scramble your brain like we did with St. Paul. Years of relearning what his Judaism was really all about. But first, he was made a disciple, he was baptized, and then he was taught. I like that. I want Erasmus to be right. 
I want Mano Simons and the Mennonites to be right. I want this to be right because I believe it. And if uh, I don't want to be wrong. <laughs> Not in case. There's very good arguments for infant baptism too. But this is the beginning of the adult baptism doctrine. It emerged right out of no less than a Catholic theologian, Erasmus, putting a footnote in a Greek Bible and the rest is history. Well, Protestantism, caused by a Dutch Catholic loose cannon who probably smoked little cigars and drank pulse. Right? You didn't have that tobacco empire yet. You should study what the Dutch were up to. It's fantastic. Teaching. I send you to make disciples, baptize them, yeah, my name or the Trinity, apparently whatever in the book of Acts, then teach. Okay. None of these guys are university professors. None of these guys are theologians. Peter declares that part of what astounded Sanhedrin when he was called to give account for his behavior as an evangelist was that it was so obvious that these were uneducated men. What that meant, not you uneducated. When you're uneducated, that means what? You quit high school, grade 10, and you can still read and play games on your iPod and stuff? iPad, so that's what I do. Uneducated meant illiterate, couldn't read. No, they couldn't read Hebrew. No, not a word. Oral culture. Unlearned men. And they're going to go and they're going to teach. So what you're seeing is, no, they didn't have university degrees in theology or in Bible or anything. They were a team of worshippers and doubters. Worshippers and doubters. And then they're empowered with the Holy Spirit to go out into the world and to declare, to declare this resurrection from the dead. What they can teach is this. They can teach by example. They are teaching more as an apprentice it learns from a master. They are teaching in a lifestyle to be imitated. It's not theology, it's love. It's living out the love of Christ. You see this in St. Paul when, I believe in the Thessalonian letter. He opens First Thessalonians and he says this. Do you remember, Thessalonians, what we were like when we came to live among you? Me and my gang, my whole missionary team. We lived with you for two years. Do you remember how we lived? You saw our lives. We lived our very lives before you. You saw how we live. Now, copy us. Imitate us. Because we are imitating Christ. And Christ is the image of God. That's the teaching. And this has always been, up until the heady days of Protestant bookie kind of religion, that to be a follower of Christ was to be an imitator of Christ. Not a knower of a bunch of verses that you had to make other people know and then teach them to teach other people like a big... Amway network you were going to build for the kingdom. Multi-level marketing for Jesus? No, it's not that. It's imitation. It is to be able to say, do as I do, live as I live. And immediately you think, but I'm a sinner, I'm a doubter. Yes, exactly. So are these people. What we do is we show what we do with our doubt. We show what we do with our sin. Which is simply to confess it and to receive the forgiveness and the grace of God. We live as sinners forgiven. We live as doubters. We can doubt because He remains faithful to us. Doubt is not a big problem for God. Little people who are skeptical, not a big problem. Teach, imitation. So worship is obedience then. 
Worship is obedience and it models for others to follow. And the obedience is this. I wanted to say one thing because I'm kind of rambling on today. But I hope there's something of interest for you here. <coughs> that worship isn't primarily a mood, though it can be. Worship is not primarily a mood. If it begins with a mood, if it begins with hugging Jesus and crying and touching him and being in disbelief that he could have risen from the dead and to adore. At the end of the day, it's like lovers. You know? Think of love and loving. You know how love and wanting to say I love you and wanting to hear I love you back and adoring little kids and seeing them when they adore you. and It's there. There's the worship of Jesus but then it becomes an obedience. It, it is the obedience to pray in community. To remember to gather together on the first day, as the book of Acts asks us to do, though we are often lax. It asks us to remember the Lord's Supper and to there experience something that's not cognitive, it's not teaching, it's the bread and the wine. It's the practice of hearing the spoken word of God it's the practice of singing the songs and hymns and spiritual songs all the way back from ancient Judaism. Songs of hope and faith and love. That's why what we call here liturgy is just the Latin word for the work of the people. What we do as people in our obedience to come together and to be a testimony, be a light to the world. Regarding the doubt... I want to close with this. Do you know who Pascal, the mathematician and Christian philosopher, Pascal is uh, 1600s. And Pascal lived in a time of one of the first great waves of skepticism regarding Christianity. There was always skepticism regarding Christianity. It's just you kept your head low if you wanted to keep it attached to your shoulders. But after the Renaissance and after the Reformation, not only new forms of religious expression and questioning emerges, but so does just doubt as to whether there even is a God and how rational it is to believe in God. And they don't get more rational than Pascal the mathematician. And so he thought about what it is to believe in God apart from all the rational stuff. And he had a few interesting things to say. One of them is a, a phrase we're very well aware of called the heart has reasons the mind has never even heard of. The heart gives us reasons to believe. Well, what might those be and how might I attain those? Well, he actually gave us a way to attain that. He said, I know what it is like to have this doubt and I'll tell you what you do when you have the doubts. You do not turn to books that prove God. You do not turn to rational apologetics because... God is not of that order. He's of the order of the heart, of the mind. It's Pascal. So he says, this is what you do. When you're in doubt, go to church. Go through the motions. Get up when they stand. Sing the songs when they sing the songs. Let the words of the prayers come through your mouth and say it. Go to communion and receive the bread and the wine at the Lord's Supper. Go and do these things. Act the faith. Let the faith be acted through you. And you will have the moods. 
The mood will come. The mood belief. The emotional kind of belief. The sense of closeness to God will come. And go again. Because that's the way it is. But you don't stop doing the things that we were called to do. Because you aren't in the mood. Now, we're part of a movement, historically, that is a mood-based kind of Christianity. And it's through pietism, is a large part of what we do. If we're from an Anabaptist or a Baptist or a Methodist background, pietism is in the background, which is all about personal, direct relationship with God and sincere faith. And that involves a lot of mood. It does. And a lot of pastoral counsel is to help people through times of fear, fear of God, for the types of doubts that are emotional. But Pascal said, unless we're going to find a way to get into our heads and just turn on the emotional worship and belief center so that it's permanently on, we don't know how to do that. There's a thing about us that when we go through the motions, even when we feel we have no faith, and we belong to the community, and we do the activity of the community, you'll find that there are seasons. Great hope and joy. Great love and consolation. And there are still nights, dark nights of the soul. I close with this rabbi. I give you a rabbi. Lest there be a Jew in the room who does not leave with a word from the rabbi. <laughs> he was asked, I hear that I see Jews that can be in any religion. I see Jewish Buddhists and Jewish Zoroastrian and Jewish Sufis and Jewish atheists, you see all that. Jewish New Agers, all of it. But big problem. Jewish Christians. Difficult. Now what, what, do you, what do you do when a Jew has no faith? Or changes faith? What do you do? And the rabbi said, when one of ours no longer believes, or does not believe, or is weak in the faith, then that person is carried by the rest of us. The community believes for that person. Because faith isn't some little individual private matter. It is the whole practice and the being of life, the way of life of Judaism. And when there are some among us who are weak, the strong ones carry that person. We believe for that person. And that person can be in our community and inside can be feeling nothing. And we will help. We will walk with that person. And invite them through the life, the life of the people of God, until their hearts are healed. But we do this together. And I'm ashamed to say that in our community we have said, you must leave our community. You're not one of us anymore because you were in doubt or you don't believe or you have questions. Instead of we are in this thing together and there will be good days and bad days and there will be days of strong faith and weakness and there will be days of disobedience and days of obedience. And all of it is us group of worshippers and doubters who were taken and used mightily by God that the credit would go to the Holy Spirit not to those whom he uses let's pray Father we call you Father because Jesus called you his dad and invited us to be his brothers and sisters in the communion of those who are created by our Father and are called by him Lord, the greatest revelation you gave us was the demonstration you gave us of love. When you say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, 
then you're saying if you've seen love you've seen God and those who live in love live in God and God in them love is capable of living in so imperfect creatures as us in fact it's the only motivation that will heal us and give us hope because love never gives up love never runs out on us Lord God, as we spend these weeks looking at the first disciples and how imperfectly your church got up on its feet and began the journey through history, remind us that though we are a small community and have great days ahead and changes ahead for us, that we can bring our worship and our doubt, we can bring our fear and our joy, we can bring consolation to one another. And we can be a community that carries one another. Lord God, we ask that your Holy Spirit strengthen and mature and guide the place as we move ahead into the future you have for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.